We're continuing in this series of 1 Corinthians and looking at how we can <clears throat> break free of cultural Christianity that's easy to get sucked into in our culture. But before we start, um, hopefully everyone got a little survey um, coming in. I'd like to do this all together before we start. You don't have to do it. It's anonymous, so we don't know who you are. But we would really appreciate um, if you guys would fill us out, out for us. So the first question if you guys to take out your survey, is um, to circle whether you are a male or a female. So that one's easy. Get the first question done. Number two is how satisfied are you with your relationships at work? So Jesus calls us to be in the world and not of the world, right? We're, we're supposed to be able to impact the people we're around. Um, and so how easy is that for you? Do you feel like you have support? Do you have relationships you can connect with at work? Or is that a struggle um, at your workplace? Next question is how many times a month do you typically attend church? Now, it's usually there's four weeks in a month. Um, and so you can't mark like five or six if you come Saturday night and Sunday, if you come to discipleship just on a weekend. Um, how often do you typically come to church? Next question is how difficult is it for you to forgive when you are offended? So I want to explain this one because there was a little bit of confusion, I guess, last night. So a 10 would mean it's extremely difficult to forgive. A 1 means it's pretty easy to forgive. So a 10 would be when you're offended and hard things happen, it's, it's really hard for you to let go. It's really hard to, for you to forgive. Maybe you can kind of forget and push it aside, but to actually find forgiveness in your heart can be really tough. And a one would be it's kind of like water off your back. Someone hurts you, you can forgive them, move forward, not really too big of a deal. All right, next question is how satisfied are you in your marriage? 10 being the most rewarding and fulfilling marriage you could imagine for yourself. So 10, not that your marriage is perfect, but that it's firing on all cylinders, really feel like um, you guys are connected um, in all areas of your marriage and have a clear vision and purpose for what God has for you. Um, a five would maybe be um, things aren't terrible, but things aren't great. You love each other, but maybe um, you need a little bit of motivation and encouragement to excel in your marriage. Um, and then a one would be um, kind of on the verge of divorce, of, of that is something that you've contemplated or talked to your spouse about um, in the recent future. Again, it's anonymous, so you don't have to put your name on it. But um, our last question, I'll give you guys a second to think about that. I know everybody's looking at what everybody else is putting, right? All right, how many hours a week do you typically spend in focused prayer and Bible study or Bible reading? So this could include, you know, life group if you guys are in the Word, discipleship. This could include just your quiet time, personal time with Christ. Um, you don't have to get it down to the minute, but just in general, you know, about how, how often you, you spend time in the Word a week. All right, so as we go through this scripture today um, and we go through this 
this survey, we have um, two of the offering boxes in the back and then one as you're leaving the church. You can fold those up, put it in there. Now, if you do have questions or if this sermon stirs things up in you that you would like follow up with in discipleship or support in your marriage or support in how to share the gospel in your workplace, that's where you have to not be anonymous and write us a note on the back. You can put your name um, and we'd like to follow up with, with you. You don't have to do that. But if you'd like um, support in those areas, um, we'd, love, we'd love to help you in any way that we can. All right, so we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today, and we're really only going to get to the first half of this, of this scripture today. Um, it's a long chapter, and it's a little bit of a co- complex chapter, so we're not going to get, I'm not going to try to rush it all in. I kind of tried that last night. It didn't work that great. So um, we're going to slow down, hit the first half of the chapter, but I do want to look at a scripture um, that's about midway through the chapter to start us off, um, and that is in verse uh, 19. First uh, Corinthians 11, verse 19. Sorry, I'm throwing Renata a curveball. I don't know if she'll get that on the screen or not, but um, you can turn there in your Bible. And he says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So one theme of this scripture, and really in 1 Corinthians as a whole, is there was a lot of conflict in the church. There was a lot of hard things. There was theological things they disagreed on. There was leaders um, that they disagreed about. There was marriage and how that should operate that they disagreed about, being impacted by the culture, what they should do, what they shouldn't do. There was a lot of disagreement in the church. And a lot of times disagreement and conflict can make us uncomfortable, right? We don't want that in our church. We don't want that in our lives. <clears throat> but what Paul's actually saying here is it's a good thing. Because when conflict happens, Jesus even said, I came not to bring a peace, but to bring a sword. That when conflict happens, and a lot of times the truth of God and the gospel is offensive to our natural being, that that's actually a good thing because it starts to separate those who genuinely trust Christ and those who are walking in the flesh. And Paul talks about this a lot, is that the Corinthians at times, he says, were um, carnal, fleshy, or... Um, they were even said babes in Christ, a very immature in their faith. And because of that, there was conflict, but the conflict was exposing ways they could grow. And even in the Corinthian church exposed um, some believers who were false believers, who weren't truly in Christ and actually were just um, causing trouble and division in the church. So for all of us, one thing that we can measure is when trials and testing and conflict come, how do we deal with those things? Because those things are proving the genuineness of our faith. And in this scripture in particular, um, it's a challenging one. And it's one that more and more often today people are saying, well, that was just cultural. You know, it's specifically about marriage. It's specifically about men and women's roles in the church, in society. And a lot of times in a lot of different um, areas in our culture, we're getting pushback. Well, the Bible's outdated. That doesn't really work today. It's because women weren't as educated or whatever different excuses that get thrown out there. But whenever we get pushed out of our comfort zone, we're going to have to answer the question, are we going to rely on what we think in our own rationale is true? Or are we really going to put our faith in what God's word says? And so I think today is a challenge. I know it's a challenge for me. And if you can read the scripture and not be challenged, um, you're probably not paying too close of attention. Because this really, marriage and what God's called men to do and what God's called women to do, it should bring us to the end of ourselves. We can't do it in our own strength. The only way we can do it is if we're led and we're empowered by Christ. So 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I 
am of Christ. So this is a big statement to, to start off. Paul's saying, follow me because I follow Christ. Now, can we say that? Could you say to people at your workplace or could you say to your kids or to your spouse, follow me as I follow Christ? Big statement, right? But that's something, as we've talked about running the race to win, that's something we should get to the point that we can say. Again, Paul's not saying he's perfect. He's not saying, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm not gonna make any mistakes. But he is saying, I'm living an example of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a Christian. And each one of us should get to a place in our maturity where we can say that. Not that we're beyond correction, but that we're living in a way that um, is a good example of who Jesus Christ is. Now, I think a big part of this is understanding the foundation of our faith. And that's something we focus on in discipleship, is making sure that we understand, um, first and foremost, who we are in Christ. Salvation is a very powerful thing. Our entire identity shifts. And there's a few opportunities. Um, they're all up on the Church Center app now. Um, but I'm just going to mention them. You can sign up for them um, any time between now and August and into September. Um, but we have a class specifically called Identity in Christ. Um, Bob Rose will be, be teaching that. It's an eight to ten week class be, um, starting in September. One of our elders, Kevin, will be teaching through the book of Ephesians um, between the 9.30 and 10.30 hour, line by line, verse by verse through that book. And that book really talks about what is our purpose as individuals in Christ, but what is our purpose as the church? So that is a discipleship class you can um, get involved in. We have our equip class that will be coming up. It's about a three-month class looking at the foundations of discipleship. And then we have a new ministry that's getting launched um, this fall called Mitchell Brian University. So sounds all academic, right? But the point of this is to provide an avenue for people who feel maybe called to ministry, um, people who feel called to leadership, um, maybe called to be a missionary in the future, that we have a track here that we can train and equip people to do those things. And not only for leadership, but for people who do feel um, called or want to have an experience of getting deeper in the scripture. Um, we'll be teaching um, line by line through the Bible and hopefully over the next three to five years, get through the whole Bible, every book from Genesis to Revelation, teaching through um, the scripture. So if you like today, um, we're gonna get a little bit deeper because we kind of have to, because there's some cultural things that do impact the scriptures. If that's something you enjoy, we'll be having those type of classes on Saturday evenings from 6.30 to 7.30. So our goal to be imitators of Christ, part of that is being equipped. And for some of you, maybe part of that is participating and teaching those classes, not always coming to classes, but being able to teach and lead others. And we'd like to provide opportunities for you there. So if that's something you'd like to do, please reach out and let us know that you are wanting to be a disciple maker, wanting to help teach the word. So the second thing he says here in um, verse 2, after being imitators of Christ, coming to a place of our maturity, one way we do that is by what he says in verse 2. He says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. Now this word tradition is what the apostles used for doctrine. It was what the apostles were passing down from Jesus so the church knew how to behave. So he's not saying they followed traditions and I always hate to pick on the Catholic church, but a lot of times there's a lot of traditions, right? They just go through maybe mindlessly at times. He's not talking about those type of traditions. He's talking about um, really what we now have in the New Testament. A lot of the New Testament doctrine wasn't written down yet, but it was spoken orally, one, because not everybody could read, um, but two, because it was easy to memorize and remember through creeds and through the scripture. So he's saying, I'm encouraged that you guys have held fast to the word. To the word of God. That's how they're becoming more like Jesus Christ. And 
Unfortunately for the Corinthian church, this is kind of the last um, positive thing maybe Paul encourages them with for the next couple chapters, is that they had in some areas really held fast to the word, but in other areas they were starting to drift away from what God's word truly said. Now verse 3 continues um, talking about something that they need to um, change. It says in verse 3, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So the question we have to ask ourselves, and the question that gets asked, if you haven't already been asked this in your Christian life, is this scripture cultural? Or how do we know if scriptures are cultural um, in the Bible? And one thing that I'd like us to, to consider today is that we need to understand, is the Bible talking about something that is a doctrine? And what I mean by doctrine is an absolute truth of God. Because what we know about God is he doesn't change. And so his truth, his word is not going to change from culture to culture. But application or how we express our worship can change from culture to culture and that's okay. So as an easy example for, for my own life is if I'm preaching here at Mitchell Berean or if I'm preaching at the Chuck Wagon down on East Overland or if I'm preaching only country I've been at outside of America's Kenya if I'm preaching in Kenya, or if I'm preaching in Fort Collins, um, the doctrine, the truth of the gospel should be the same. I shouldn't be changing my message, but the way I present that message, or maybe the application I'm asking the people to take, will vary from culture to culture. But the foundation of what I'm saying is going to be the same. Now, verse 3 is the foundation of Paul's argument. The foundation, the doctrine that's not going to change is that he wants them to understand that the head of man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. He's telling them the divine design and the divine order that God has created from the beginning of time. Not a cultural thing, but he's giving them doctrine. And then he's going to move into something that is a little bit more cultural. But before we jump into the cultural application that I think um, affects us and affected them, I want to look a little bit about this um, doctrine. Because... I think this is so important for the church to understand that God's primary focus, and I think what he's most concerned about, is the family. More than he's concerned about um, discipleship ministries or evangelism ministries or how big our church is, he's concerned about, especially every single man, how we are stewarding our family. Are we leading and are we investing in our wife and in our children? And is our, is, are the wives investing in their husband and investing in their children? That a church without healthy marriages, I don't think has much of a testimony. Because that's the primary vessel that we're going to find that God desires to have an example of what the gospel looks like is through a husband and a wife. So in order for us to be effective as our church, the very first thing we need to look at is our own house, is our own family, is our own marriage. And I think this is important because even in the Bible, he challenges church leaders. He says, if you can't lead your own house, you can't lead the church. So God makes a very... Um, I think obvious and specific challenge to us as Christians is the very most important thing spiritually in our lives starts at home. And this starts with not just man and woman, but it starts with, it says Christ was submitted to God, to the Father, right? That, that the Father is the head of Christ. And I want us to turn to Philippians chapter 2 that explains this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, he says, have this 
mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself, being obedient even to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see in this scripture that Jesus was, before he became a man, Jesus was equal to God. That, um, Je- sorry, Jesus became God in the flesh, right? God became a man in Jesus Christ. But Jesus says before the world began, he was in glory with the Father. That Jesus, by obedience to God, emptied himself of his divine power and fullness to be submitted to God. And Jesus loved that. He, he, it, was, it, it was his joy to submit himself to the Father. And so this is the first example that we get in 1 Corinthians 11, is that not only is God asking people to have submission, but even God himself submits to himself within the Trinity. Now that can be kind of hard for us to wrap our mind around on how all that works, but there is design and order within the Trinity And this isn't based upon value. One part of the Trinity isn't more valuable than the other because without one part, kind of the whole story of the Bible and the whole character of God falls apart. So you need all three parts of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're all equal in value, but they all have different functions. Now that's gonna be the same for men and women, that we have different functions, but that doesn't change the value that God puts. In fact, we're gonna find that the image of God cannot be fully expressed through mankind, without both a man and without a woman. Now, I want to go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. And he talks about this. So I want to to start with this scripture before we get into the specifics of men and women. He says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So this scripture isn't contradicting what we read in 1 Corinthians, but it's getting at the value of people. He's saying we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way we're saved for all of us is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, doesn't matter if you're black or you're white or you're a slave or you're free or if you're a man or if you're a woman, that we're all made equal because of coming to the foot of the cross, that we're all in need of a savior. So as we read about these different roles, I think Galatians is clear. This isn't a matter of value. But what we are going to find is without God's design, without God's structure, things start to fall apart. And we are the ones who have to reap the consequences of that. So if you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll see the order that God has given for men and women. That is not cultural, but it's his design. It's his doctrine. It's his truth. That's ultimately for our own good. And... um, You know, the scripture says where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Um, This is the most freeing and positive your marriage can ever be is when we submit it to God's word. Even when it's uncomfortable, we don't totally understand it, that's where faith comes in. We're trusting that God's design is more important than how we feel or what we want to do. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, he says, Submitting to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. Now we're going to talk about this word submission, but one thing I want to point out is before he gets into the wife's role of submitting to her husband, he says to everyone, we need to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there is an element of the fear of God that should be in my life when I interact with anyone and everyone. Because every single person is made in the image of God and every single person Jesus Christ has shed his blood for. And so if I'm treating someone poorly, I'm treating someone poorly who has extreme value to God. So before we get into the roles that we'll explain, there's an element of submission that should be on all of our lives to every single area of our lives, whether that be work, whether that be marriage, whether that be church, whether that be um, family, that we are in reverence towards one another submitting because of our fear of the Lord, because of our fear of God. So verse 22, he continues on and says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and that the wife see that she respects her husband. So there's a couple things that are really important here. One is that he finishes this saying this is a profound mystery. And he doesn't necessarily say marriage is the profound mystery, but how marriage relates to Christ and that we are going to be one with Christ, that is the mystery. That God has given us a physical, tangible experience of marriage, of becoming one flesh, that that could give us a foretaste of what it really is going to mean to become one with Christ. Now that can seem a little odd or something that we don't always put together, but it's so important to realize that that's actually the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage isn't our own happiness, isn't um, just to procreate, but the purpose of marriage is for our relationship with Christ to grow, for us to have a better understanding of who he is and of his love for us. But the second thing that's very important to, to realize here starts with the man, is We could talk about women submitting, but as men, do we realize how big of a challenge this really is? And no matter who you are as a man, if you're married, you can't get away from this calling. We can't just say, well, I'm not really a leader. Well, my wife's a better leader. I I, I like to co-lead. Whatever terms we might like to throw out there, you can't escape this. That every single man who is married, has a family, will stand before God on how we stewarded and how we led our wife and how we led our kids. And that starts with how we submit ourselves to Christ. If we aren't submitting ourselves to Christ, how in the world could we expect our wives to submit to us? We shouldn't, we shouldn't want to ask them to do that if we aren't first submitting to Christ. And what does that look like? And for those who are married, um, it does look like what was our time in the word look like? What does our time in prayer look like? What does our time in prayer with our spouse look like? That if we're not leading by example as men and taking that ownership, um, there's no way 
our wives are going to be able to submit. And if they do, God bless them. Because the problem is, is God doesn't let women off the hook because the husband's a bad leader. If the husband isn't leading in the way that God has called us to, he still expects the wife to submit. He doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands unless they're a little bit annoying or unless they're not leading in the way Christ has called them to. He just says, submit. Now, I'll do one caveat of he doesn't mean follow them into sin. He's never going to ask us to sin or disobey God. So women, he's not asking you to submit to your husbands in sin. That's one excuse that you get. And two um, is abusive situations. God isn't going to ask women to endure abusive physically where they're in harm or their children are in harm um, in the name of submitting to Christ. That's not what he's talking about. But in general, he's saying that women are to submit to their husbands regardless. And so husbands, the question I have for us this morning, for myself included, is if you were a woman, would you want to submit to you? Would you want to follow your own leadership? I think that's something that we should um, consider. Is, is my leadership something that I myself would want to follow? And if it's not, we're making it really hard on our wives because they've got to submit regardless. And so we're adding an extra burden on them when we are not leading in the way that Christ has called us to lead. And vice versa for women, if you were the husband and you were leading, would you want to lead yourself? Are you someone who's leadable? Are you someone who's respectful? Are you someone who is able to challenge in a way or to make your opinion known in a way that is loving and gentle and actually builds up your husband? Or if you were being led by yourself, do you feel like you would be worn down or discouraged based upon the way that you're able to submit to the man who's leading you? So I think it's important for each one of us to put each other in the other's shoes because regardless of how we feel about this, This is the truth. Each one of us will stand before God and women will be held accountable for submission and men will be held accountable for their leadership. If you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, shows why this cannot be a one-way street, even though we need to be obedient, even if our spouse is not. But this is meant to be a team thing. It's meant to be a unit. So if you turn with me to Genesis 1, 26 through 27, It was this way from the beginning of time. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So who makes up mankind? Man and female. Who makes up the image of God? Male and female. That male isn't the image of God with women as an add-on, but it's man and woman coming together in leadership and submission that expresses the character of God to the world. And that's the number one, the number one call of the church, of each believer, right, is to express who Jesus Christ is to the world. Where we start with that is our marriage, and we can't do that on our own. We can't. We need one another. We're going to read it in 1 Corinthians. Man is not independent of woman and woman is not independent of man. That we need each other to fulfill the roles God has called us to in order for this to work in the way that God has asked us. Now, submission, again, does not mean always in the back seat. But um, the Bible says that the woman would be the helper um, for man. And this word helper is actually used of God in the Old Testament over and over and over. The same word that David will say in the Psalms, God, you are my helper. 
someone who aids him in his weakness. And so the woman is not just supposed to be a helper in the back, back seat, but the woman is supposed to be alongside her husband, able to help and support and speak into his life where he needs to encourage him to be the leader that God has called him to be. And that's the thing for men is God has created you to be a leader. Even if you don't feel like it, even if you're listening to this and thinking, well, that's just not me. It's not the way God's wired me. It is, and he expects it of us. And women, that's something you can help your husband do, is realize the call on his life to be a leader and encourage him in that. So wives aren't called to help just in the back seat, but it's even a military term of basically reinforcements. If someone's in the front lines, they're kind of getting their butt kicked, right? The reinforcements come and they save the day. In the same way, that is the picture that the wife can bring at times. Is the husband's worn down, he's discouraged, he's not leading well, and the wife is able to bring support to get them back on track and to design the purpose that God has for their lives. But the challenge comes in Genesis chapter 3. If you turn over a couple pages in verse 16. He says, to the woman, he said, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now the sin of the fall of man was that Eve was deceived, right? She listened to the serpent. But also the, fall, the problem with the fall of man is man didn't lead. Man was passive and woman took the place of leadership. And as a result of that sin, God is saying this is going to be a lifelong struggle for both men and women. That women are going to be contrary to their husband by nature. Not something we can't change, not something the Holy Spirit can't change in our hearts, but by nature, women are not going to want to submit. That's not something that's going to be like, yes, I get to submit. But it's going to be a struggle for women, for wives to submit to their husband. It's going to be what Jesus says to deny ourselves and pick up our cross is going to be a daily struggle. And I understand that because men aren't perfect. I know for me, it's got to be a struggle at times for my wife to submit to me and my own mistakes. Because again, she has to submit even when I'm wrong. And so I get why it's a struggle, but we have to realize as a couple, as the church, that this is something that is going to be a daily battle and by nature is wired in women. But I believe in the same way for most men, it's wired in us a lot of times um, to be passive. I'll get to it later. Now I'll get to the things I want to do, but as far as taking responsibility for my family, instead of taking responsibility for my kids, taking the ownership, not passing the buck, blaming the wife, blaming the kids, blaming the culture, blaming our boss, but actually taking responsibility for circumstances, for outcomes, regardless of other people's actions, can be a struggle for men. So men need to be able to step up to the plate, take responsibility, but women need to be able to fight the urge to what the Bible says, to rule over or to master um, your husband, because it will be a temptation, especially in his, we- in, in his weakness. So in order to do this, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? This can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. It can only be done in the love of Christ. There's no way on God's green earth can I love my wife and be an example for my family without denying myself picking up my cross, without God changing me from the inside out on a daily basis. It's something that's required. And I do want to encourage those of you who are dating, this is what you're signing up for. So if you're getting closer to marriage, it's not something just to make you happy. But can you, if you're dating someone right now as the woman, 
the guy you're dating, can you see yourself submitting to him in the way the Bible's teaching? And if you're a man, can you see yourself leading this woman in the way that God is teaching? Because once you say, yes, I do, you're signed up. Can't get out of that. God will hold us accountable to that covenant and to that commitment. So we turn back to 1 Corinthians 11. Um, This sets us up for the first half of this chapter. I think makes the whole chapter a lot easier to understand of why Paul is so adamant on this area of submission. So in verse 4 he says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, have you ever read such a confusing scripture, right? Hairs and angels and head coverings. So a couple things real quick is in the Roman culture during this time, shaving a woman's head was a sign of adultery. It was a way they shamed women in this culture. If they had committed adultery, they would shave their head. Number two, prostitutes oftentimes would shave their head. It was a sign that they were open and they were ready for business. If you saw a woman with a shaved head, either she had committed adultery or um, she was a prostitute. She was looking for business. Two, a head covering that he talks about um, was used in the marriage context. Women who were married and were submitted to their husband and were faithful to their husband, that's just what they did. They wore a a head covering. In our culture, maybe it's like a wedding ring. It was a symbol to to society that they were submitted, that they were loyal, and they were faithful to their husband. That's what a head covering was for. And for women with long hair um, who were single, it was expressing that they were willing and ready to submit to that order, to that design, and submitting to their husband. Now today, if someone were to wear a veil, um, I asked a couple women maybe if they would want to today to um, see what we think. But if a woman walked in here with a veil, um, what would we think? Would we think any of those things? Adultery or, or with a shaved head or a veil? We wouldn't think of any of those things because those things don't apply to our culture, right? Those things have no meaning in our culture today. But in the culture then, what was happening is if Christian women were shaving their head or if Christian women weren't wearing a veil, what they were saying is they were unsubmissive, they were rebellious, and they weren't in accordance with God's design. And so it was saying a message loud and clear both to the church and to society. And so the point being here is Paul is making a big deal out of head coverings, not because head coverings are important for every culture, but because of the importance of submission and the importance of God's design within marriage. The other thing that was going on during the time is women who shaved their heads were part of a feminist movement who were against, again, biblical marriage. They they wanted to have open marriages, um, even homosexual marriages was a sign of, I'm gonna shave my head, I'm going against the culture, and I'm going to make this statement. Now this was a temptation for some of the women Um, I believe in the Corinthian church because of Christian liberty. Because of the new covenant, we aren't always bound by what other people think about us or by every law that may be written. And so it's a temptation to say, well, I know my conscience is good before God. I'm not trying to rebel against my husband. I just don't want to wear a head covering. 
That's what maybe some of the women are, are, were thinking. But Paul was saying you don't realize the impact you're having in your culture by showing yourself as uns- unsubmitted to your husband. Now, ways that could happen today is maybe the way women dress by maybe social media, right? There's different ways a woman can display herself as taken, as happy, as content in her marriage. And there's a way a woman could show herself as discontent, um, angry at her husband, or as if she was single, right? There's ways that women can portray themselves in those ways. In the same way, he's saying men shouldn't wear a head covering because it's a sign of submission or it's a sign of shrinking back from leadership. So there's ways that men can show themselves as if they're not a leader. There's ways that men could show themselves as discontent um, with their marriage. And so what the Bible is encouraging us as a church is in every way possible, we should be taking every opportunity to show the world what marriage and what submission, what leadership looks like, what the gospel looks like within our marriage. Don't confuse people for no reason. If there's things you can do, even if it's not your preference, but if there's things you can do to show people your love for your wife, men, you should do that. If there's ways people you could, or women you could show people your submission, your love, your loyalty to your husband, your respect for him, you should do that, even if it isn't always our preference. Finally, he talks about um, the angels. I want to read this scripture real quick in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, to, the, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and accident, or access with confidence through our faith in him. He says in verse 10 that um, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's talking about angels. See, one thing that I think we're unaware of as people, and I believe it matters to God because it's actually mentioned multiple times in the New Testament, is part of the church's testimony is not only to the world, but it's to the angels, is to reconcile angels to know God and to understand his glory and his majesty in a way that they don't currently understand. Now, angels are in the presence of God every day. And it says they cover their face and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Like they can't even open their wings because they're in such awe of the majesty and the glory of God. But these angels who are in the midst of the glory of God can learn about God through our marriages. Because what angels don't understand is that when Satan was cast down from heaven for for rebelling against God, um, he had no grace. He didn't get a second chance. God had no mercy. So what angels see is the power, the glory, the justice, the majesty of God. But what they don't totally comprehend is the grace and the mercy and the love of God. But through the church, what angels see is rebellious and wicked and evil people who hate submission, who hate leadership, who hate God's will, all of a sudden, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by grace through faith, they see these people turn into rebellious people into submissive people. And they see the glory, the power, and the majesty of God, but also the love and the grace of God to redeem such a wicked people. 
And so women, when he says, do this for the sake of the angels, it's a symbol, it's a sign to the angels of your salvation, of God's grace, of God's love, and, our, and your ability to submit to your husband. And the same way for men to be able to take on the leadership that God has put on our lives. Now, for us, we may feel like, ah, oh, that's not a big deal. I don't really care about um, teaching the angels. But God does. Again, it's coming back to his word. Do we have faith that this is important? Not just in a physical sense, but in the spiritual. So I want to close with one last scripture in 1 Corinthians Starting in verse 11. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. It's a team aspect. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourself, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered or unsubmitted? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a great disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For hair is given to her for covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So by nature, we all know it's easier for women to grow long hair than men, right? It's kind of for maybe guys who don't have a lot of hair in the room. Eventually, our hair can go away as men. So he's just using that as a point. I don't think he's talking about literally wearing long hair, short hair as men and women. But he finishes with, we have no such practice in the churches. And something for us to... to I think really ponder in our lives is he's saying he has no such practice as the design, as the order that God has for men and women. He says, we're not just preaching submission and leadership to you guys in the Corinth church, but other places we're saying, do whatever you want. He's saying, this is the only way, this is the only option for Christian marriages. If you want to glorify God, if you want to take your place as a Christ follower in marriage, you have to do this. This isn't an option. This isn't cultural. And like Paul says, testing Things that make us uncomfortable are good because they refine us. He's saying this test of submission and leadership is going to show those who are submitted to God's word, submitted to God's will, and those who are submitted to their own desires and their own flesh and aren't following Jesus Christ. So nothing, nothing is going to test us more than marriage and nothing will test us more than are we willing to submit to God's design even when we don't totally understand it. So I want to pray for us and um, invite our, our worship team. Um, back up. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. God, we pray that um, we would be able to realize the severity of the gift of marriage. Lord, it's a gift in so many ways, God, you've, you've used it to, to bless us, God, but that we would see it's something that's very important to steward, Lord, and it's a ministry that you've given us um, not to take lightly. It's really the most important thing you've given us to steward the side of heaven. God, so I pray that in every way we can, just like you encourage the Corinthian church, Lord, in every way we can, that we would show the world that we're submitted to one another, we love one another, we sacrifice for one another, and we've embraced the role and the call that you've given us. God, so I thank you, and we love you, and pray that your spirit would move in Jesus' name. Amen.